Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. The fun things about marriage is that you learn very quickly. There are things that you agree on and there are things that you do not. My wife and I have been married for 15 years and one of the areas that we have never really found a common ground is furniture. I am of the belief that furniture should be comfortable. When you sit on it, it should feel nice and should help you relax. That is its job and its purpose. All the guys in here, yes, let's go. My wife is of the core conviction that furniture should look cute in the space it's in. Don't amen that. That's wrong. That's the wrong position. Spoiler alert. So we've lived in a lot of different houses. We've moved a lot of times. So we constantly have had to switch out furniture and things like that as we went to new places. So we've had to do the shopping a lot. We don't agree, so it creates a lot of fun arguments. We'll go to a furniture store, and I'll be like, look at this couch. This is awesome. This is great. She goes, you don't like that? I'm like, yeah, I know. I really do, because it's comfortable. It's ugly. We're not getting it. Okay. And she goes, that's the one we need. I'm like, that's, that's not furniture. That's a medieval torture device. It's called a rack. They use it to stretch people out before they cause them pain. You know, because it has spikes on it. Why do you want to sit on spikes? Because it looks cute in the space. Hmm. So, we go to this furniture store, and I find this sectional, and so I'm like, this is the most comfortable piece of furniture in the store. So I bring it up, like, hey, we should get this. I know it's going to be a no. And she goes, yeah, that's cute. I'm like, hold on. We just agreed. 15 years it took to agree on one piece of furniture. It's this big sectional called the unicorn couch, because we both actually like it. And it's got this giant ottoman, so you put that over, like, next to the chair itself, and it becomes like a king-size bed in the living room. And then I learned, after being married and having a kid that kids have a third opinion about what furniture should be. And Rowan looks at that thing and he goes, this is not a couch, this is a trampoline. I'm gonna jump on it. And so he starts practicing some kind of weird like gymnastics routine. He's doing like flips and rolls and jumps. He's diving into pillows. And so we'll be there talking, spending time together and he'll be on the couch jumping around, living his best life. And then for those of you parents, you know where this goes, right? <laughs> Mommy, daddy, watch this. And as soon as that happens, you know, there goes the rest of our evening. Because he's going to be doing this like 800 times, and every time he's going to insist that we stop the conversation that we're trying to have, or whatever it is that we're doing, and watch him over and over again as he does the exact same thing again and again and again. My bro, I watched you flip 97 times. Can I not watch for 98? No, watch this. <sighs> Why? There's something innate in the heart of a child that desires to please their parents and to obtain their approval. If you've been a parent, you know there's other things in their heart too, but that's part of it. So this week we're in Hebrews chapter 13. After eight months, it's finally come to this, the final chapter, the final week in our study through the book of Hebrews. 
So what we've seen is Hebrews is a book of big themes. And so some of the major ideas that we've looked at, the first part of the book of Hebrews is a story of comparison. It's Jesus is greater than this, and Jesus is greater than this, and Jesus is greater than this. So that we can understand the superiority of Jesus to anything else that we could turn to or trust in or place our hope in. And then it moves to the assurance that we have, the confidence that we can have in Jesus, that our salvation is given to us by the work of Jesus, not by our effort or performance, so that we can rest assured in the confidence that we have, in the salvation that we have, because it's not dependent on our perfection, but upon his sacrifice. And then the third kind of major theme that we see through the book of Hebrews is the imperative for the Christian life to grow. Those who belong to Jesus should be growing and maturing in their relationship with him, And then now, chapter 13, we come to practical application. Basically, every letter in the New Testament is going to follow this same pattern. It starts with theology. Here's what you need to know about God. Here's how you can understand him better. And so the books will open teaching us about who God is and what God is like. Because everything that we do and everything that we are is built on the foundation of knowing God. Jesus in John 17 says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So all of life is built around the foundation of knowing God. And so all the books open teaching us, here's who he is so that you can know him. And then usually somewhere after the halfway point, the book will shift from theology to practical application. Here's what we are to do and how we as followers of Jesus are to live in light of what we know about God. So knowing God is the foundation, the application is how we build our lives on the knowledge and understanding of who God is and what God is like. All right, so it's the same kind of flow that they're all going to have. You start with orthodoxy, that's right teaching. And then you move to orthopraxy, that's right practice, what you know and what you do with that knowledge. So, Hebrews 13 is focused on teaching us as the children of God practical ways in which we can please our Heavenly Father and honor Him in our lives. And it starts by emphasizing the relationships we have with one another. So, verse Chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let's stop there. That's a lot to unpack. (laughs) How we treat one another is a reflection of the love that we have for God in our hearts. The evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the love we have for one another. In 1 John, John says, hey, if you say that you love God, but you fail to love your brother, you're a liar, and the truth of God is not in you. He also says, 1 John 3, 14, by this we know we have passed to life, from death to life, that we love the brothers. The proof that we are no longer dead in our trespasses, no longer dead in the sinful ways in which we used to walk, the proof that we are alive in Jesus and have received from him the salvation that only he can give is the love we have for one another. Or Jesus says, John 13, By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Over and over, the Bible makes this very clear. The love that we have for God will be evident in the love we have for one another. Now, let's be really clear here. The love that is being described is not conceptual love. It's not ideology kind of love, like, oh, I just love everybody, and I want to put out, like, good vibes and peace and love, like, all the time, that that's just my thing. 
Nope. That's not what it's about. The love that's being described here is a passionate love. It is a bonded love. It is a real, messy love of someone that you are in active relationship with. Because let's just be real here. It is easier to love an enemy overseas who you will never meet or know than it is to love the person in your own home. Because that person, I may hate everything they stand for, I may hate everything they do, but they've never personally wronged me. They've never made a mess in my life. They've never caused me personal direct pain. So to love them is a concept. It's an idea. Yes, we're to love all people, so I'm going to look past all that evil stuff that they do, and I'm just going to hope that they receive the gospel. Great. But the people in your life who are imperfect, who are flawed, who see things differently than you, or think that your furniture should be a torture device, that's harder. Because that impacts you. That's the stuff you have to live with. Real, messy love in actual proximity with another person will always be harder than conceptual love for someone you never meet. And that's what this is about. So stop me if you've never heard this, because there's this very popular idea in the culture today, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? Which is true, just like you don't have to be in water to be a fish. But the idea is complete and utter nonsense. Because so many commands in Scripture cannot be obeyed outside of godly community. So many things, that, especially verses like this, you cannot obey Jesus' instructions if you're not connected and committed to engaging in relationships with God's people. There are things that you can do at home to build your relationship with God. You can read your Bible. You can pray. You can do a lot of the things that happen in church when you're by yourself. But there are a lot of biblical commands that cannot be obeyed outside of godly community. See, the beauty of technology is it allows us to stay connected even from a distance. There's a gift in that, like, hey, you're traveling, you're sick, something's going on, you can't be present in church, so you can actually watch a service online and engage. We broadcast our services for that reason. That's a great gift. But the danger is that we take advantage of that gift and we twist its purpose. We're like, yeah, we should go to church, but you know what? Like, I don't want to put on pants. So, like, I'm just going to stay in the living room and we'll watch it on our TV, same thing. No. No, the streaming things, the idea that you can connect to the Word and to the teachings of God without being engaged in presence with other Christians is meant to be supplemental, not replaceable. Because you can't honor this command outside of godly community. But when we love one another, we honor God and we please Him. And the practical way in which that love expresses itself is in how we treat each other, how we serve each other, how we sacrifice for each other, how we talk to and how we talk about one another. And it is, if we're real about it, the talking that's usually the thing that gets into trouble. Because we get in this, culturally we're taught like, hey, you got the freedom of speech, you can say whatever you want. (laughs) And to quote the great philosophy from Jurassic Park, just because you can doesn't mean you should. In, as citizens of America, yes, you can. As citizens of the kingdom, no, you can't. Just because, see, this is what we like to do. Because something, we feel it. If we believe it's true in our hearts, it's how we feel, or we believe it's true, we think that we have the right to say it. No, you don't. You don't. See, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. 
We go, okay, so long as I love the person, then I can tell them the truth. No, not how that works. The truth is delivered in love, not that you love the person that you're beating over the head with truth. See, what it is, what happens so often, and the places where this happens the most are with legalistic religious zealots who want to conform everybody else to their pharisaical kind of standards and in marriage. And the reason that it happens is not because we have such a core conviction in the value of truth. It's because we get lazy. And it takes work to stop and to think about how you can package truth in a way that is loving and receptive to the other person. It takes effort, thought, to consider how to repackage the truth that's there. Are you saying we shouldn't call people out? No. Have you ever listened to me talk before? I call things out all the time. It's one of my character flaws. But how we approach that is different. This is love, what it does not do is love does not use truth to justify criticizing, belittling, demeaning, or diminishing another person. And if that's how they feel, when you talk to someone else, they feel lesser after that conversation. It is probable, not guaranteed, but probable that you did not present that information in love. See, the Bible teaches us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The focus of love is to encourage, to build up, to support. The purpose of love is to equip, and when change needs to happen, to change in a way that is positive and beneficial. Because love concerns itself not just with what is true, but with how the expression of that truth impacts the person that you love. Right? So, how's this? If somebody comes, I gotta go to you and say like, hey, did you know that your right eye is slightly smaller than your left and it's crooked? There's nothing you can do about it. I just wanted to know because it's true and now you can be insecure about it for the rest of your life. Some truth is not beneficial to share. Love is focused on not just what is true, but what is beneficial. Truth is the what. Love is the why. And until the why for what is motivating you to share that truth is love for the benefit of the other person, you have no right to share it. And until you have taken the time and wrestled and worked with the presentation of that truth to be able to say it in a way that conveys the love that you have, you don't have the right to say it. Love is why, love is how. And it is the packaging of the truth that determines whether or not that information will be beneficial or detrimental. To present truth without love is to be critical and to diminish the other person. To present truth in love is encouraging, it's mentoring, it's coaching. But the way you present it should encourage and cause the person to want to change that thing in their life. Not to want to fight you for being a jerk about it. How we speak, how we talk to each other is a reflection of the love that we have, not just for each other, but for God. Ooh, so we got to do a whole chapter. We are still in verse 1. This is going great. <laughs> do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So as we open with sort of the social ethics of the children of God, first thing comes up is hospitality. This is a core value in the kingdom of God. It is an essential quality in spiritual leadership. 
It is one of those things that gets talked about over and over in Scripture. In fact, God actually lays it out as if you're, when you're hospitable to someone else, when you open your home to them, make a meal for them, when you demonstrate hospitality, you are more blessed by the offering of it than they are by the receiving of it. And that's from someone who likes to eat food, especially if I don't have to cook it. <laughs> hospitality is one of the highest virtues in the kingdom of God. And something that all Christians should value and seek. And so then he makes this comment about entertaining angels, which you can, you can go some weird places with this, okay? But here's what he's going for. There's two points he's trying to make with this comment about entertaining angels unaware. The first is to demonstrate the extreme value that God places in his kingdom on hospitality. And the second is to generate excitement and awe. Imagine when you were a kid on Christmas morning getting up, walking into the living room where you got the tree all lit up and all the presents laid out, and you're just filled with that sense of excitement, right? Anything could be in those boxes. It could be a pony. The box is this big. I'm like, I know there's a pony in here somewhere. Like, you, you have no idea. It's so exciting, and it fills you with a sense of almost magical wonder and excitement. Three times in the Old Testament, three different people, entertained angels without realizing it. Abraham, Gideon, and Manoah. It's happened before. And so his point is not, hey, you guys are probably going to have an angel come visit you, so be prepared for that. It's this is the kind of excitement, this is the kind of joy and energy and hopefulness you should have at any opportunity to be hospitable because how cool would it be if an angel was at your house having dinner? So take that magic and that excitement of possibility with you to every opportunity to be hospitable. It talks about those in prison. This is not like prison ministry. That's a different thing. This is, remember the brothers who are in prison, those who are believers who are in prison because they're believers. Care for them. Support them. Encourage them. Treat them the way you'd want to treat them because act like you were in prison. How would you want people to treat you? What would you want them to do for you? So take care of each other. So one of the things the early church was known for in the world around it was how they took care of their own. That is not a reputation we have anymore but it should be. See, this prison and hospitality, they both fall under this umbrella of care. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn. It's being sympathetic and empathetic with one another. It's caring about what other people are going through. It's thinking about how things impact their lives, that we might demonstrate the love of Jesus and how we treat them. And again, this is one of those areas where our words have a tendency to get the better of us. Because we feel entitled to share our opinion. We like to make our stances known. And we often do so without any thought of how it might impact the people around us. So I'm going to tell you something. Now, before I do, I want to make this very strong disclaimer. I'm not taking a stance on this issue. I have deliberately for years not taken a stance on this issue. So if you're going to look, oh, he must feel this way about this, you're going to be wrong. I've been arguing with people on both sides of this thing, saying you need to come together and you need to love the person on the other side of that aisle better. Because what you're doing is not, well, you can have your opinion, I don't care where it is, but you need to be better at loving people who disagree with you. A guy I went to school with who worked with me at my first church got COVID this last year, went to the ER and died. It happened so fast that before his family could get to the hospital, he was gone. He's my age, no underlying health conditions. He had three daughters, three little girls. 
who didn't even get to say goodbye to their dad. So imagine how they feel when they walk into a church mourning the loss of their father and somebody starts toting off about how government regulations are ridiculous and this whole COVID thing is a scam and people are just making a big deal out of nothing and ranting in their little view. Imagine how those little girls feel about their brother or sister in Christ who just did that to them. Look, I'm not saying you shouldn't have an opinion or you can't have your thoughts about those issues. I don't care what those are. What I'm saying is what if we stop to care about how our uninvited expression of our thoughts and ideas about different issues? What if we cared more about the impact of our words on other people than we did just toting off whatever we wanted to say? Love COVID, hate COVID. Love it. (laughs) It doesn't matter to me where side of this thing you stand on. The nature of love and caring for one another is that you do so when you don't agree. Anybody can love someone who agrees with them on everything. It's not love, it's just agreement. But what if we, as the people of God, what if we cared more about the impact of our words than our social right to share them? What if we stopped and we thought for just a second, please hear me, this is not a judgment, I'm horrible at this. Because my mouth goes really fast. If you don't notice, I talk fast. My mouth gets ahead of my brain all the time. <laughs> Stuff comes up like, oh, that's not good. That's, I get it. This is not meant to be judgmenting. This is not meant to be critical. So what if we made an effort to stop, to think, and to consider how we spoke so that we weren't the ones causing injury to our own family of Christ? Verse 7. Nope, verse 4. Let the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So after dealing with the social ethics of the children of God, he moves to the personal ethics. The first is honor marriage. Now, there's two ways where we tend to mess this up. The first is when we, so there's, it's not common anymore, but there's this idea sometimes that people who are unmarried, who have devoted themselves to God rather than getting married, are more spiritual. And there's an idea that some have carried, twisting the words of Paul, that to remain single and devoted to Jesus and Jesus alone makes you more spiritual, and people who get married do so because they're spiritually not strong enough this dishonors marriage and is unbiblical. The more common is sexual liberty. This is perhaps the greatest issue facing our culture today. God created sex to be a gift for a man and a woman. <laughs> That's the end of the sermon. We're good. No. <laughs> But God created sex to be a gift between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. Any engagement in sex outside of that context is a defilement of the marriage bed. You can defile the marriage bed before you are married. You can defile the marriage bed if you are with the person that you intend to and are going to marry in the future. 
Any sex that occurs outside of God's context is a defilement of that and dishonors marriage. To which we tend to let the devil speak and twist and go, oh no, I've, I've made a mistake. I crossed the line. I had sex before marriage. Now uh, I've messed it all up and it's defiled and that's, it'll never be good again. No. Look, let me just tell you, like, I do a lot of weddings. I just walk in at this point under the assumption that that line has already been crossed. I have done, I think, 40-something weddings. I think maybe two of them, that line hadn't been crossed. The point is not, you need to feel guilty. You need to be condemned. You need to beat yourself up because you didn't handle life perfectly. No, we're all sinners. Look at how Jesus responds to the woman caught in adultery in John 8. She's caught. She's guilty. The religious leaders bring her out. They throw her on the ground in display, shaming her. They say, hey, the law says we kill her. What do you say? And Jesus says, let he is without sin cast the first stone. One by one, they walk off. And Jesus, the one person who has a right to cast a stone, looks at the woman and he says, where are those who came to condemn you? And she says, they've gone. What's he say next? Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Two things that Jesus held together. Not a condemnation for sins that have already occurred. Not a guilt trip for what she's already done. A forgiveness, a you are not condemned because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm not condemning you, but what I am doing is I'm commissioning you to leave that sin behind. Don't keep doing it just because you've already done it. You can honor the marriage bed even after you've made a mistake. You can honor the marriage bed even after sin, and you can repurify it. Just don't keep on sinning because you already sinned. Not condemnation, but commission to leave sin behind. Then he moves to don't love money. You've got to be careful because a lot of times you like to twist that to be like, oh, money's evil. Money's not evil. Money has no innate value. It just is. It's a thing. Right? It's not morally good or morally evil. It's morally neutral. But the love of money, that is wrong. And that is dangerous. Because what happens is the more our hearts desire the things of this world, the more those things pull our hearts away from Jesus and our focus off of him. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Right? It's a young guy. He's powerful. He's successful. And he's followed the law perfectly since he was a kid. Like That means not only is he young, and he's accomplished a great deal, but he did so honorably and the right way. But he still knows, having followed the law, he knows he's missing something. So he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell your wealth and come follow me. He says he went away sad because he had great wealth. The danger of wealth is not that the money is evil, is that the more we have it, the more we trust it. The more we turn to it, the more we rely on it, the more we place our faith and our hope in it. If you got the money, you go, hey, I'm not worried about that. I can take care of it. Oh, I got this issue. I can solve that on my own. And it makes us feel like we can be independent of God. And so what happens when we have wealth, the great danger of wealth is that we turn to money, we trust in money, what we should be turning to and trusting in Jesus. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. But when wealth replaces Jesus as the God and provider of your life, it becomes a problem. Now we're on verse 7. 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food which have not, which, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So there's two kind of side-by-side components that go into this section. The first is look to spiritual leaders. Look to those who came before you, to the example that others set. This is discipleship. It's mentorship. Find someone who's further along in their journey with Jesus. Look at how they live. Spend time with them and imitate their faith. What this allows us to do is to learn through wisdom, how to navigate our current culture and circumstances out of a desire to love and follow Jesus. It's a very beneficial, very powerful tool. What you can't do is idolize the person. Don't put them on a platform. Don't lift them up on a pedestal. People are imperfect. They're going to change. They're going to fail. Don't elevate people. Look to them. Follow their example in so much as they're following the example of Jesus, but do not put them on a pedestal. Like, I'm, a, I'm just saying, I'm a nerd for this. Like, I don't even like the architecture of the room because I'm on a stage that's above you. So you can, mostly so you can see me. <laughs> I would like the room to be built where all the chairs are going up and I'm at the bottom. So everybody's looking down at me, not looking up at me. Okay? Right? Not just for good pictures. This communicates. I'm not above you. Don't put people up high. They will fail. So we balance that, like the, the, the looking to people as an example and following that by also maintaining our focus on Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't change. Jesus doesn't fail. And so we imitate people as they imitate Jesus. We follow the example of others as they follow the example of Jesus and only in so much as they do so. Because we keep our focus still on Jesus. He's the goal. He's the end. He's the prize. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus who is unchanging, who is unfailing, and whose love and grace is the source of our life. Then it talks about not going to strange teachings. You would think, why do you have to tell people that? Because people like weird stuff, especially church people. We love weird teachings. We gravitate towards them. We obsess over them because they play in the mystery of the scriptures. They play in the unknown. We get to be hypothetical and dance. There are people who make their entire careers off of unpacking obscure passages of scripture because the problem with an obscure passage is you can't prove them wrong. I can say this. There's no way for you to disprove it because we don't have enough information. And man, we get fascinated by it. Like... Revelation, right? One of the most beautiful books of the Bible, completely twisted so much by weird teaching, but we love it. We eat it. Oh, did you hear what this guy did with Revelation? I just, please don't talk to me about this. I don't, I like my sanity. I would like to keep it. Because when I read one more guy going through Revelation, be like, the locusts here in Revelation, these are Apache helicopters. Oh. If this is your contribution to theological thought, please do the kingdom of favor and take a vow of silence until Jesus returns. <laughs> no. Don't be ridiculous. Like, you got to stop with stuff. But we have all these weird teachings. So many people try to make a name for themselves by saying something new. Here's a really good test. If something hasn't been said for 2,000 years since the text came out, it's probably not right. 
if the first time an idea is occurring to a Christian is 2,000 years removed from the original statement and the audience and culture, they're probably wrong. Okay? So don't go after the weird stuff. As fun, as exciting as it is to play in the weird. Look, I like weird. I am weird. I get it. We're not here to play in the weird. We're here to be about Jesus. The heart of what we are about is the gospel. And we are to stay focused on the gospel, to stay centered on the gospel, because that is the essential element. That is the source of life. Don't get caught up in the little things that we don't fully understand in this life. Focus on the main thoroughfare of Scripture that is the gospel. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so he's doing kind of an allegorical comparison here between old covenant, new covenant, old sacrificial system, new sacrificial system. The point of it ultimately is this. The old sacrificial system was designed to be exclusive. You're either an Israelite or you're not. Only certain people, certain tribes get in. Only some of them have access. Jesus gets taken outside the city, indicating he's outside the camp, that the kingdom is no longer exclusive but inclusive, that all are invited in, that all can come to him, and that all who come to him can receive the sacrifice that he made because Jesus brings a greater kingdom, a greater promise, a greater covenant. And while the kingdoms of this world will fade, Jesus will remain. That he will be our food, our drink, our life as he pours upon us grace upon grace. And so we have this great hope, this great life in Jesus. So do good. Serve one another. Be generous with one another. Be hospitable to one another. Because this is pleasing to God. When the people of God imitate the character and behavior of God, it pleases Him. So when those whom God blesses use the blessings that God has given them to bless others, we honor and please our Heavenly Father. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure to have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. <laughs> so this is the verse that we, the whole reason we're doing the study of Hebrews. So we get to verse 17 and I say, you got to do what I say because I'm the leader. Ha <laughs> ha. Bank account, social security, credit card number, password, name of your first cat. I need you to send that to me now, and you got to do it because, you know, I'm the boss. That's a joke. Like, please don't do that, okay? Don't ever send that information to someone. That's a joke. I don't like have to say that, but it is. The whole point is this. This is not a blind 
unquestioning authority that we're giving to people. We're not saying, oh, okay, I'm going to do whatever you say regardless. I'm going to give you absolute authority in my life. No, don't do that, okay? There are people who are leading churches who have no place calling themselves Christians, not to mention leading people. So this is not blind. This is not unquestioning, okay? So if a leader says, hey, guys, you should drink this really fun Kool-Aid, it's like, don't drink it. Okay, it's, don't drink it. It's not good. It's a different joke. Just me. Only the religious nerd that thinks that's funny. <laughs> Human leaders do not have absolute authority. What it is saying here is for those who are genuine shepherds, for those who seek to honor God and to guide people as faithful shepherds to him and to grow in him. Honor them. Listen to them. Submit to their authority. Have obedient hearts. Wait, did you just say submit? Like, do you know what country you're in, son? This is America. This is the land if you can't tell me what to do. I get it. Also, religious freedom. Yeah, but we dumped uh, tea into a harbor. It wasn't for religious freedom. It was because we didn't like being told what to do. Okay? We don't like being told what to do. We like our personal freedoms. We like having authority in our own life. So why should I submit myself to someone else, to another imperfect person? Because spiritual leaders will give an account for you. Because spiritual leaders are responsible for you. We will answer to God for you. So I want to make a disclaimer here. Everything I'm about to say, I don't care if you do it to me, but do it to the other leaders. Do it to other people. I'm not because I wrestle with like maybe I just skip this part of it and don't do it because I don't want it to seem self-serving. I can't do that. My job is to teach you the Bible. So I'm going to talk about. I don't care if you apply it to me. Make fun of me. Tease me. Whatever you want to do. Cool. Don't. Bother, but listen to the other guys. Honor them because of the weight that comes with this. The phrase "keep watch" literally means keep yourself awake. I cannot express to you that that is what the spiritual leadership is. It is one of the greatest honors and responsibilities. It's also an extremely heavy burden. To be a spiritual leader, you, you stress, you worry, you carry the weight and responsibility of every person in the church's growth and development in their journey with Jesus. You don't have the power to directly affect it, but you carry the weight of it. I stay up at night. I lose sleep. I think about it. I toss and I turn all the time because of the weight of the spiritual responsibility of being accountable to God for what we do with his church. Because you know what a spiritual leader never gets to do? Clock out. When I go out to dinner with my friends, I'm not at dinner with my friends because you know what I am? I'm a pastor. So everything I, gotta, I do, i got to think, how does this look? How's this person going to think about it? How are they going to receive it? Everything I say, i got to scrutinize and question, man, is that going to make the church look bad? Is that going to make me look bad as a pastor by doing so? I don't get to relax. I don't get to be myself. I don't get to let all that out the same way as if I wasn't in this position because I don't get to. The responsibility of spiritual leadership is you're constantly thinking about the impact, the perception, not just the reality of your life, but the perception that others have. And you're going, man, what if this, what if they don't understand this, but they don't ask me about it, so then I'm now causing them to stumble. You know what happens when I go to another country on vacation and they don't speak English? I'm still the pastor. 
It's carrying a backpack on your shoulders filled with weight every single day. It's sleeping with it, taking it with you all the time. That weight never comes off. That responsibility never ends. It is a wonderful, wonderful joy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about it. What I want you to understand is the weight that spiritual leaders carry for you. Because a good spiritual leader is going to spend more time thinking about your growth and your development and your relationship with Jesus than you are. And their concern and the weight that they carry is from their deep affection for the church. Look at how Paul writes in his letters. He goes, God can testify the number of times I've lost sleep, how I've sweat and cried and beat myself against the rocks because of you, for you, out of my concern for you. Right? Imagine how you as a parent are with your kids. Then you want to keep them safe. You want to guide them. We got like 700 kids. It's a lot. Pastoral ministry has a 95% dropout rate within 20 years. 95%. They told us that when we were in college. Like, <laughs> good luck. I was like, this is crazy. That can't be right. So I started writing down names of the people that I went to school with, the guys who I was convinced had what it took. There are people, I didn't write their names down because I'm like, you ain't going to make it past your first ministry. But there were people, I wrote, I wrote their names down. You have the calling. You have the gift. You have the passion in the heart. You're committed to full-time ministry. You're going to do this for the rest of your life. And so I wrote their names down. I started going through the years, ministered with different people, come alongside different people. I add their names to the back of my Bible. And every year I go through and I cross out more names. Some that gave up. Some that quit, some that failed. Because the weight of spiritual leadership is heavy. And it could be a lot to carry. And so the commission here is let it be a joy to lead. Be a joy to lead, not a pain in the patootie. It's a patootie in church, that's cool. Help us help you. Because the concern a spiritual leader has is for your relationship with Jesus, your growth in Jesus. So the commission, I'll make it harder than it needs to be because the weight is already heavy enough. Be a joy by having a submissive, obedient heart when the leader is leading faithfully. I'll also be the first to tell you if I tell you something unbiblical, if any person that stands on this stage tells you something that's not biblical, don't listen to them. But so long as we are faithful to the word, be a joy to lead so that your leaders can endure it. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation for I have written to you briefly. Okay, We spent eight months. This is brief. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. What a perfect way to end 
this book. After everything that's already been said, may the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the church, may he equip you with all the tools that you need so that you may serve him. Because church, it is the spirit of God that molds the people of God into the image of God. It's not your work, it's not your performance, it's not your effort, it's your submission and surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Being a Christian is not what you do. That's behavior modification. It's not what you know. That's intellectual assertion or easy believism. The Christian life is knowing God relationally. It is understanding who he is and what he is like and growing and living based on that knowledge. It is pursuing him, seeking him, desiring him, not just with feelings, but through his revelation of himself in his word. It is honoring God and obeying God and seeking God so that everything in our lives is pointed at him, is fixed on him, is focused on him. Because when our hearts and lives are focused on Jesus, everything we do becomes worship. It is the heart, it is natural in the heart of a child to desire to please their parents. We are children of God. The greatest desire that should exist in our heart is to please Him. The conviction of all that we do should be to please our Father. We should be like Rowan, jumping on the couch. Dad, Watch this. Not living, trying to hide away from God because we know we're doing wrong, but serving Him, honoring Him, by being hospitable, by, by serving one another, by, by loving one another and caring for one another. We should live in such a way that we want to draw God's attention, that we want to call His attention so that we can say, Dad, watch this because we know that this is pleasing in His sight. The beauty of God is that we live as His children to please Him and He has the grace to tell us exactly how to do that. In how we love one another. This is pleasing God. The church used to be known for how it took care of its own. What if we got that back? What if we became a place that was so faithful in loving one another, in caring for one another, not through programs, but through genuine relationships, that the world around us noticed and even if they didn't like what we taught, they couldn't argue with the lives that we lived. What if we demonstrated hospitality? What if we demonstrated care? What if we demonstrated from a core conviction, a love for one another, unlike anything the world around us could ever see or know? You realize that the creator of the universe can be pleased in you? The God who has power over all things, who can do anything, create anything, anything he wants, he has the power to do, but he can be pleased in you. You can live your life in a way that brings joy to the God that sustains it and formed it. If that doesn't fill you with an excitement, it will challenge you to change how you live and what you do.
I know it does. Those who love God love his people. Is the love that you have for God reflected in how you treat the people around you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you. We thank you. We come before you humbly in awe that you would even allow us into your presence because we are not worthy of that on our own. But God, align our hearts with yours. Equip us with everything that we need to serve and honor you. Because God, what we need most to do that is your unconditional, unfailing, unending love for your people. Fill us with that. That despite the baggage we carry, despite the wounds that we all have, despite the struggles and the hardships, that we would be filled with a love for your people, that we would love one another so faithfully and so consistently that it shines like a light in our community that everyone around us may see and give glory to you. Give us your heart that we may love the way that you love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.